0: Well, in a few weeks, we're going to begin a season of revival services. That will begin with our community-wide revival starting Sunday, February 24th through Wednesday the 27th. Those will be held at 7 p.m. at the Glenville Auditorium. Our Glenville Area Ministerial Association uh, is coming together to plan these revival services for our whole community. Now, we'll follow that up with our own church-conducted revival services on March 17th through the 19th, just about a month later, starting at 7 here in our sanctuary with special guest speaker, the Reverend Mike Ricker. Mike is the pastor of the Isle of Hope United Methodist Church, one of the larger churches in our annual conference. He is also the executive director of Light for the Nations, which is an international evangelism and missionary organization Um, He has spent time through that organization in Peru, uh, in Ecuador, in India. In fact, uh, I think it was, what's today? Yeah, about two, three days ago, Mike left for a six-week mission to India where he's going to be leading uh, evangelical crusades and training pastors, uh, et cetera. So he'll be back just in time to unpack, say hello to his church, and come over here and help us lead our revival. And that reminds me of a story that I remember hearing a while back. So one day a man met a famous revival preacher. This preacher was famous for going around from town to town, Billy Graham style, and conducting not evangelism crusades, but revival meetings to help people make new commitments in their life. And this man was desperate for advice, so he asked the revival preacher, he said, how can I bring revival to my city? I've tried everything. And the revivalist replied, You, go home and lock your door, find a quiet space, and there, with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. Kneel in that circle. Cry out to God and pray with an open and broken spirit, and do not get up until revival comes to that circle. Revival, the movement of God to revive our lives, to give us new life, to bring us a greater thirst for Jesus Christ, a greater thirst for holiness, a new call into mission in the world. It does not begin with what we do to other people. It does not begin when somebody else changes or gets their act together. Revival begins with us in our own souls. So we can have all the revival meetings we want to. We can have all of them. And you can leave there as cold or as cynical or as bored as ever. You might leave there with just an excuse to skip church because you already went to church that week. If you don't leave change, it's not because the speaker wasn't good enough. It's not because the singing wasn't good enough. I wonder if you need to enter that circle. So here's what we're going to do. Because we're entering such an exciting season, and I believe that there's a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit ready and waiting for us to receive, we're going to spend a little bit of time getting ready uh, for not just those revival meetings, but for revival in our day-to-day lives all together. So we're going to start this series of sermons today called The Chalk Circle, and I'm going to be inviting all of us and calling you to enter into your chalk circle and pray for four things that can prepare your heart to receive what the Spirit of God has for you. And we're going to begin today with the prayer for humility. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4, verse 6 through 10. We'll start reading in the second half of verse 6. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to share with you a little inside baseball. So I like to work on my sermons over the course of a few weeks. I like to batch them up, work on a bunch of them at a time. It gives me a chance to make sure that I'm paying attention. There's nothing worse, if you're a preacher, than what we call the Saturday night special. A Saturday night special is great in a diner. You go up to a diner and they say, here's my Saturday night special. Bring on the meatloaf, bring on the ribs, what you got when a preacher's serving up a Saturday night special, we're we're not at our best. That means that we uh, sat down about nine o'clock last night, figured out what we might say, and then tried it out on you to see if it works. So in order to try to avoid that, I try to work on a series of sermons all at one time, and I try to get a draft done by Tuesday at the end of the day. Now the reason I do that is this. If I don't, inevitably I'm not going to be able to sleep all week long until I figure out what I'm going to say. Uh, another reason is because inevitably, if I don't put something down on paper, at least an outline, I'm going to have four out-of-town hospital calls, three funerals, and then uh, something else out i got to go do, and I'm not going to have any time to get anything done. So you know you've got to preach every week. Put in the time. Get ready to preach. The other thing that it does for me is that if I get at least a draft down on Tuesday, I put that baby in the slow cooker of my brain, not the actual slow cooker. That's a fire hazard. But I put that thing in the slow cooker, and God works in it, and I can start to see new connections, and it's it's more genuine by the time I come to the pulpit. And I finished a solid draft this Tuesday, and I was proud of myself. And what I'm sharing with you today is not the draft I worked on on Tuesday. If you've ever felt the desire to preach, I've got to give you a warning. One, sure, you're going to have to get up in front of people and talk. Yeah? And here, you have to do it. In two different groups of people, right? You have to do that. You got to. You got to make sure that you put in the time so that you have something to say. Because there's nothing worse than being a preacher and standing up and holding a congregation's attention captive for 15 or 65 minutes uh, if you ain't got nothing to say. That's not what I'm warning you against, man. Why'd you laugh out that low? I hear you preach every day at the dinner table. I was kidding. What I really need to warn you about, though, if you're, if you're interested in preaching, is that's not the hard part. The hard part is if you're preparing to preach, you had better be ready for God to put your life through that sermon before you ever hit a pulpit. You had better be ready for God to preach that sermon to you before you ever get into the pulpit. It will happen every time. You cannot get up and proclaim the word of God without sometime before uh, God saying, come here, preacher, and taking a needle uh, of that word and just poking it at every part of your life that you need to hear it because you can't preach what you haven't been preached to. So this week I had a really good sermon written about pride and humility. It was good. It was going to tell you all things like, don't be too proud. Don't act like you're better than other people. Get humble and you'll be blessed. And all those things are true, and I felt real good about it. Either I felt good about it or I felt good about having it done. I haven't decided yet. And nothing says humble like, hey, y'all, I just wrote a great sermon on humility. I kept having these nagging moments all week long. And just where I saw God enlighten in me. Moments of pride that showed up in the strangest ways not that whole braggadocious nose up in the air full of myself kind of stuff but in the strangest ways there are moments of covert pride pride dressed up like virtues pride masquerading as humility but pride nonetheless so my warning to you is if you're going to preach you better be prepared for god to preach to you first Because throughout the week, I felt the call to say, you missed the mark, son. Let's get deeper and talk about the pride that we all face. So that we can find real humility in the depths of our souls. So that we can clear space for God to be at work. You see, the deal is, uh, the, the way that James defines pride is very interesting. He says, God opposes the proud. Great. That's a, an arresting sentence all by itself. But that word proud is actually interesting the way James does it. James writing in the original Greek language it uses a compound word that means overshine. It's literally the words over and light put together. So God opposes those who overshine, those who outshine God and others. So pride, when we really look at it, if we were to define it like James, could be put this way. When we put the spotlight on ourselves. That makes good sense. Now we can spot the obvious stuff about pride pretty easily, usually when we see it in other people. You ever notice how easy it is to see everything that's wrong with somebody else? It's real easy. No, come here, let me tell you what's wrong with you and, you and you. We know We know the obvious signs when we see it. Somebody talks about themselves too much. They brag. They're stuck up. Uh, it's, it's, uh, they're always looking down on somebody else. Maybe they ignore people they don't think are worth their time. We can see that pride in someone else. It's a little harder to see it in ourselves. But for that big stuff, we can probably pick it out if we put just a little bit of effort. Oh, yeah, I did spend most of that conversation talking about me. Or, wow, I ignored somebody. That was really rude of me. But pride is sneaky. Pride is sneaky. It can sneak up on you like a ninja, like a covert operative in a born identity movie, like George Clooney in Oceans 11, 12, 14, or 26. It's a sly beast. It disguises itself as a virtue or weakness fooling us into thinking that something good is happening in our life. But all the while, pride is sneaking into our life, putting the spotlight back on us in ways that we don't always recognize. What a sneaky little beast pride is. And so to help us get ready, I want to talk to you about some of pride's trickiest disguises so that we can see it coming when it comes. Pride is tricky. It's sly. Sometimes pride dresses up like self-criticism. Sometimes pride dresses up like self-criticism. It would seem logical to think that humility means that we think less of ourselves. And therefore, if humility is to think less of ourselves, then criticizing ourselves seems like a great way to do it. Oh, I was so wrong. Oh, that was bad. Oh, I'm not good at this. That's awful. So it might seem like taking ourselves down a notch makes it so somebody else doesn't have to. It's good to be honest with ourselves about what's going on in our lives but an incessant chronic habit of self criticism is usually a way to protect ourselves from the criticism of others or a way that we can uh, in a socially acceptable way express our own hatred for a part of our own life It may seem like it's taking us down a little bit, but to focus our energies on criticizing ourselves incessantly is another way to say, hey, guess what? Spotlight's on me. Hey, you did a good job. Yeah, but I messed up on such and such and such and such. Give me that spotlight right here. Oh, it's tricky. It's tricky. But self criticism is pride in disguise if we're not careful. You see, humility is not thinking less of yourself. You've probably heard this. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not about diminishing yourself, but about guiding yourself to honor God and others. Sometimes pride, that sneaky little thing, dresses up like self-criticism. Sometimes, here's one, sometimes pride will dress up like perfectionism and get all up in your life. You don't see it coming because it looks good. It's good to get things right, isn't it? If you were to have a choice between somebody who gets things right or who gets things wrong all the time, you'd like to have someone on your side who gets things right, especially at tax time, right? You like to see people get it right. And if you think, gosh, if it's good to get things right, then I need to get things right all the time. I'm going to strive for perfection. And there's nothing wrong with working hard and working well. However, perfectionism as an incessant situation is a focus on us. It's a way of saying that we are driven by fear that somehow I am diminished by my mistakes or less than stellar performance. So in order to protect myself, I'm going to throw myself into perfection, which continues to put my focus in the spotlight of my life on myself. In order to protect ourselves, we put ourselves and our performance at the center stage. It's great to do things well and to do things right, but when we are driven by perfectionism, we are putting things, uh, putting the spotlight at the center of our lives. Think about if we're working together on something. Hey, do you have that thing that uh, you said you'd get for me? Oh, it's not just—it's not quite right yet. It's not quite right yet. You're going to have to wait on me a little bit longer until I get it done, till I get it perfect. And guess what? Spotlight me. I'm unwilling to put out anything that's negative because of how it will make me look. I'm not willing to put out anything that's not perfect because I'm so concerned with how I am perceived. Perfectionism, oh, is pride in a sneaky disguise. It looks good, but it puts the spotlight on ourselves. Humility, however, recognizes our limits, the fact that we even have limits. Humility leans on God for perfection not on ourselves. You might remember in uh, Paul's writings, he said, uh, God tells him, um, uh, I am made perfect in your weakness. Humility says, I'm going to rest in God's perfection and not try to take that on myself. Pride is sneaky. You see how it can just show up in your life? You might be nice to everybody. You might be normal and uh, happy-go-lucky. You won't brag a bit, but my goodness, it can show up in our lives. Sometimes it dresses up in a neat little costume called workaholism. Workaholism. It's good to take responsibility. It's good to work, right? I've got two young men in my house. I want them to take responsibility. I want them to learn how to get things done. For example, I would love, uh, if, as they did earlier this week, uh, to continue when the dog's whining at the door in the morning, that they don't wait for me to tell them they take responsibility and get the work done, right? I'd love for the dog to get fed and the garbage to get taken out. Let's take some responsibility. This is good. We want this to happen. We want this to happen. In fact, most of our failures internally in relationships at work will occur because somebody has neglected to take some sort of emotional, social, or actual responsibility and left it for somebody else to clean up. So we want people to be responsible. We want people to work hard. However, when we are incessantly overworking, you better be careful because pride might be sneaking into your life. A workaholic works out of a belief that the world will stop spinning if I stop working. And I'm not just talking about going to your nine-to-five and the job you take your salary. And I'm talking about anything that we put our attention to. If we can't stop because for some reason things won't keep going, if I don't keep doing it, then we've got a little bit of a problem. Or workaholics out out of the fact that work is who i am and if i'm not teaching or selling or administrating or preaching who am i and so you continue to overwork and if you'll notice it puts the focus back on you most workaholics will find themselves one day in a troubled relationship with god or with other people a workaholic will work themselves so much that they'll wake up one day and turn around and realize that everybody's out playing and they're by themselves It's a focus on us. Humility, however, recognizes that the world does not rest on our shoulders. I don't know if you know this or not, but the world was spinning long before you were born. And guess what? It's probably going to keep spinning long after you've gone. I don't know if you know this or not, but people were doing things long before we got there. It probably happened long after we gone. The world does not rest on your shoulders. There's only one religion that talks about the world resting on somebody's shoulders, and it rested on one man, and that was Atlas, and he had a hard time with it. But the world will continue. In our Christian tradition, um, there's a, a history of, of what we call the daily office. It's, a, it's a, a way of praying through the day. And in the daily office, there's a daily night prayer that's called Compline, or night prayer. And in that prayer, at the end of the day, the people will say... Uh, The day has finished and the night has come and they will pray to God to continue to be at work while they rest from their labors. I trust you, God, to take care of everything that I've left done or undone, everything that requires my attention for these hours while I am at rest. The world keeps spinning. Humility recognizes this. Humility recognizes that the world keeps on going and it leaves room for God pride is sneaky. Sometimes it looks like workaholism. Sometimes pride looks like the need for attention or the need for affirmation. Pride is present when we are chronically insecure about what other people think about us. It's good to be concerned about how, you know, generally how people receive us, but to be chronically concerned about what other people think of us. It takes the focus of that relationship and puts that, guess what, spotlights on me. On me. When we demand attention from other people, because that's the only way we feel secure. We feel secure when a husband, wife, or children, mother, father, people at work pay attention to us. That's the only way that we've got ourselves together. You better be sure that pride is at work. It's funny because it looks so humble. It looks so much different than braggadocio. That's a word I learned. But pride is at work. When we are incessantly seeking the affirmation of others, we're for- focusing that relationship on ourselves. The humble, however, find their security in God and seek to affirm others instead of seeking affirmation themselves. It is God who gave us breath. It is God in whom we move and have our very being. It's God who makes the world spin on its axis. It's God whose power even gives us life God is a secure and strong foundation, and the humble rest, knowing that they're not in charge of their own security, and neither are you, God's God. They're humble enough to take the spotlight off of themselves. Pride is a sneaky thing. It could be ready to do a whole movie by itself. It's got so many costumes. Sometimes pride looks like defensiveness or blame shifting. You know what? It, there's a difference between defending yourself and being defensive. Do you know that difference? One of, them, one of them is like, hey, you did something wrong. Oh, is that, okay, come here, let's look at the facts. Did I, or did I not? Oh, I didn't, very good, or oh, I did, thank you. Defensiveness is, mm. what you talking about? Defensiveness is, is when Amanda says, hey, man, the garbage didn't get taken out. Well, I was busy all day long. What do you expect me to do with the garbage I'm taking out? I've been busy. That's defensiveness. It's that feeling we get when somehow it feels like uh, our Value is being diminished. And defensiveness is protecting ourselves. There are times when there's a criticism or an accusation of us that's actually true. And getting defensive or trying to put the blame somewhere else is a way of protecting me. Spotlight on me. And when criticism even is untrue, or when there's something that happens that makes us feel a certain way but it's not really about us, it's pride that makes me take your opinion and make it about me or this situation and stop dealing with what's true or not true about it and makes it about who I am. you get the difference? There's a difference between dealing with somebody's uh, situation and saying, well, here's something we need to address in truth and saying, oh, that diminishes me and I'm going to lash out and protect myself defensively or make sure somebody else gets the blame. You see, defensiveness and blame shifting takes the spotlight and puts it, of me. Pride is sneaky. You might have never seen that one coming, but the humble admit their wrongdoing. The humble recognize that not everything that happens in someone else's life or conversation is about them. The humble enjoy repenting and seeking the mercy of God. Pride is sly. Pride might show up Uh, as, as being easily offended. When we get easily offended, pride is sneaking its way into our lives. When someone's actions that aren't about you, you make them about you, or when you take deep offense at everything that happens around you and it's happening often, what you're doing is perceiving a threat even when there's not one. And when it is about you, pride is not willing to say, all right, here's an issue to deal with. Pride makes it about us. When we are continually offended, we could be sure that pride is at work. Guess what? People do stupid, offensive things all the time. And I'm not talking about the outrage culture that's out there because people are offended about everything anymore. Just be careful. I'm talking about when you personally get so easily offended, what you're doing is you're making everything that probably people aren't even thinking about you, you're making it about you. Spotlight me. I know a person who is so easily offended that every time somebody in their life has said something that's offended them, they have said, I'm cutting you out. I'm talking sisters, brothers, parents, friends, in-laws, everybody. You know what happened after years and years of this person doing it? They are all by themselves. They are all by themselves. Because they were not able to take the truth of what was happening, address it as a situation, they made it about them. And they cut themselves off. See, what happens when we find ourselves easily offended is that we take that spotlight and put it on us. You can be sure pride is at work. Humility, on the other hand, doesn't make everything about us. Humility seeks to understand what is real in a situation, how it really is a part of me or not a part of me. Humility seeks to understand other people. Humility doesn't carry so much pride that it's fragile and easily wounded. Humility says it's okay for you to act like whatever you're going to act like, but I'm secure in God and we can talk about it. Pride is sneaky. It shows up in the funniest ways. Oh, another way that pride might show up and and dress up in a way that you can't always see is when you are unwilling to learn from somebody or adapt to a new situation. Unteachable. Unteachable. Pride shows up that way. I know this is hard, but this is what I'm learning. When we are unwilling to learn from others, and I'm not just talking about, like, school subjects, we watched The Incredibles 2 last night. Did anybody watch, has anybody seen that movie? Okay, so I won't give it away. This is an ancillary little scene, but a superhero dad is learning how to be a dad instead of a superhero, and so he's got to help his superhero son do his homework. That sounds like a superhero thing to do, doesn't it? And so the kid's doing math, and um, the dad's trying to help him do it, and the, and the son says, no, 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 dad. We can't do it like that. The teacher wants us to do it this way. And, and the dad says, why do they keep changing math? I'm not talking about school subjects. I'm talking about when we are unwilling to learn from somebody else about who they are, about how they experience life, about how they perceive us, about a skill, a reality. When we are unwilling to learn, when we are unwilling to adapt to a new situation, things around us change and we refuse to adapt, not out of conscious, but out of an unteachability. What we are saying is, I will not learn from you, you will learn from me. I will not adapt to you. You will adapt to me. Guess where that spotlight is? I don't talk you. When I'm hiring somebody or when I am looking for new leaders, teachability is one of the top three things that I look for in that person. I don't care if you are the most talented person in your field. I don't care if you have Grammys or Emmys or whatever you get in your circle of of skill. I don't care if everybody raves about you and you've been on the cover of magazines. If you come into this business and you are not teachable, you will not learn the truth of what has been happening over time in this situation. You will make everybody adapt to you instead of you adapting to the situation. If you will not learn, I don't want you working for me. I mean, those of you who hire folks, you know that's probably, that's, you got the same idea. Teachability says, uh, not being teachable says that you must adapt to me. I uh, I will not adapt to you. Humility, on the other hand, recognizes the gift of knowledge from all people in all situations. You see, pride is sneaky. It's not just, hey, I'm going to talk about myself the whole time. Pride is not just, hey, I'm going to lift up my nose at you. Pride is not just, I'm going to ignore this person or that person. It's sneaky. It dresses up like something good. It pretends to be humble while stealing that spotlight, putting it right back on us. It feigns concern for other people while really it's seeking to protect ourselves or elevate ourselves. The Bible says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It doesn't matter if that's an obvious kind of pride or that covert kind of pride. Pride simply gets in the way of our relationships with God and with others. God opposes the proud, the Bible says. That's such a tough sentence. In fact, get this, in Proverbs it says that God hates pride. I don't know about you, but I like the the God who, who makes me feel good and affirms me all of the time. I don't like the God that tells me the parts of me that he doesn't like, but God doesn't like pride. In fact, God opposes it. Because the spotlight doesn't belong on me, it belongs on God. Not because God is so prideful that he needs us to do that, but because he is the one who created light to begin with. And it is in God that we have our breath and our being and and have anything in life. And so to put the spotlight on God is where it belongs. Why does God oppose the proud? In the words of Max Lucado, God opposes the proud because the proud oppose him. Because we take the light. We're all blinded in some way by pride in some way and we have two choices we can either be humbled or humble ourselves have any of y'all ever gotten humbled i'll tell you what how was it fun no it's not fun but something outside of you puts you in your place when something happens puts you in your place when god puts you in your place when your mama puts you in your place when your husband or wife puts you in your place it's not fun But that wall has got to come down. Because, see, God is opposing pride, and that wall has got to come down. Either he's going to knock it down, not because he's mean, but because it's good for you, or he's going to invite you to take it down so that he can come in. The Scripture is so gracious, though, to invite us to humble ourselves so that we can have grace. Thank God that he gives us the invitation to humble ourselves, because I'd rather do it myself as hard as it is than have God come in like a wrecking ball and knock my wall of pride down. Thank you, God. Be patient. Help me. And so, when we are blinded by pride, God cannot enter in because God resists that. But when we we seek humility, when we seek humility, we are no longer building a wall of pride that God has to oppose and break down. When we seek humility instead of pride, We get down on our knees with our little shovel and we dig a well that it can be filled with the blessings that God wants to bring into our lives. When there is not anything there for God to oppose, God will fill us with the joy we've been looking for, with the peace that we've been looking for, with the power that we've been looking for. I wonder how many of us have gotten to a place in our faith where we've thought, God, God's not, I can't make this breakthrough in my life, and my heart. I've got this thing going on. I wonder if there's pride blocking the way. I wonder if that wall needs to come down so that God can fill me. Because I know this. I know that God has plans for a hope and for a future for all of us. I know that God wants to fill us with life, to revive us, to give us new life. And so the question for you and for me is, Is where do we see that in our life? Would we like him to fill us? Would we like him to tear down the wall of pride? So what I'd like to invite you to do this week is to go off by yourself. Lock the door. Pull out a piece of chalk. Pick one up here on your way out. Draw a circle around yourself and kneel down. And there in that circle pray, Oh God, show me where I have built a wall of pride. Show me, God, where I am being resistant to you and you are resisting me so that I may be free. Show me, God, where I can humble myself so that there is space in me to receive all that you have for me. Draw the circle because that revival begins in you. I'm going to take two more minutes because, you know, I have something to say. Two more minutes. I want you to imagine this. Okay, imagine everybody in this room right now let's see let's let's do a little math experiment let's pretend like you can quantify pride let's say each of us carries five pride units that's arbitrary but let's say each one of us carries five pride units right what if each and every one of us this week were to kneel down in our chalk circle and pray to God to remove that pride from us and grow humble we would no longer have five pride units we'd have five humility units what if instead of God resisting five units of us. God filled five units of us because we are humble and everybody came back here. How much more space in this church is there for God because we've gotten in our circle and made room? If each and every one of us were to take the responsibility to search out pride and humble ourselves and God gave us grace like the scripture promises, how much more ready would we be to be a vessel for the spirit of God to wash through us, to work through us, to send us out into the world alive and joyful and as a force for the gospel in this world. So draw your circle. Draw your circle. Humble yourselves and God will give you grace. Pride is sneaky, but God is better. I've been working through it all week long. Now it's your turn. Come up on your way out and grab yourself a piece of chalk to remind yourself, if not to draw an actual circle of chalk on the floor, but to remind yourself that you pray until revival comes to you. Let's do so with humility. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word that even as good as it is can be difficult. We pray, oh God, that you would help us to see the pride in our lives and be gentle with us as you seek to work it out. We ask, O God, that even when we are resistant, we are submitting ourselves right now for you to knock down the walls of pride in our life. Can you do so with gentleness and mercy, please? Because we want to be humble. We want to be open to your presence. I ask God that you would work within us in our humility to show your power and strength in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As we sing our hymn of invitation,